welcome to CCAP Across the Maps podcast, What the Health, where we cover a variety of health topics in the form of personal stories and educational episodes. I'm Michael McPhee, and I'll be one of your hosts. I'm Erin Boffman, and I'll be your other host. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with Yolanda Robinson. Yolanda is a graduate of Chamberlain University with a master's in public health and George Washington University with a bachelor of science in health sciences, clinical research administration. She is on the initiatives committee for CCAP Across the Map, where she works on demographic research, data gathering and analysis, as well as much, much more. Yolanda works as a senior clinical research associate monitoring clinical trials in oncology and women's health. She has worked in bench research and clinical research, respectively, for over 25 years, and most of her career has been spent working on clinical trials, including recruitment, retention, and outreach in large academic health centers in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her future goal is to obtain her PhD in public health with a focus in community health to work towards disease prevention and reducing oncology mortality rates among underserved communities. Welcome, Yolanda. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We're excited to talk about some of these issues, especially with someone who has done uh, so much important work in the field. Thank you both. I'm happy to be here. Well, my first question is pretty basic. Can you tell us, like, what, what is cervical cancer? How is it different from other forms of cancer? Well, as you guys know, as the name implies, cervical cancer is a form of cancer that develops in the cells of the cervix. Cancer in any part of the body starts when cells begin to grow and mutate out of control. And these abnormal cells accumulate to form a mass or tumor, which can metastasize and continue to spread. And even under the label of cervical cancer, there are different types, including squamous cell carcinoma and adenocarcinoma. And these cancers can be detected and diagnosed at various stages, including early detection that catches precancerous abnormalities. So our understanding of cancer has definitely grown, especially in recent years, but what are some of the causes of cervical cancer in particular? Well, specifically to cervical cancer, 99% of cervical cancer cases can be linked to the human papillomavirus or HPV. HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the United States. And although HPV is extremely common, it doesn't lead to cancer in most individuals. However, the vast majority of cervical cancer cases, as well as other forms of cancer, such as vaginal, vaginal, anal, penile, vulvar, and oral pharyngeal are connected to HPV. While HPV is very common, the immune system does a good job of fighting it off naturally. And HPV often goes away on its own within roughly two years. However, when the virus stays in the body for an extended period of time, it can lead to development of the cancers that I just mentioned. So what are some of the signs or symptoms of cervical cancer to to look out for? Well, some of the most common symptoms that you should be aware of are abnormal vaginal bleeding, such as bleeding after vaginal sex, bleeding after menopause, or bleeding and spotting between periods or having periods that are longer or heavier than usual. There may even be an unusual discharge from the vagina, pain during sex, or pain in the pelvic region. I'm sure you hear these symptoms and they sound a lot like, you know, symptoms of other things as well, especially even STIs and things like that. But 
one of the things that's what we state is that these symptoms aren't exclusive to cervical cancer. So it's important that if you're experiencing any of them, you should reach out to your clinician. And the tricky part of all of this is to ensure that you get your screening tests, which totally center around early detection. And that's like the key thing we try to emphasize is that taking on the steps to get the screenings for early detection lets the clinicians look and check and find out if there are any precancerous abnormalities that could often occur with these particular symptoms. So you bring up a really good point about early detection and catching these cases like as soon as possible, but how is cervical cancer detected? Like what do you think is the best way to be proactive in maintaining your cervical health rather than just waiting for symptoms to appear? What is something we could be doing preventatively? Preventatively to detect cervical cancer or even cellular abnormalities are getting your regular screenings. A pap smear or a pap test is the golden standard in reference to the procedure that collects cells and from the cervix to test for cervical cancer. Pap smears can also detect changes in the cervical cells that indicate whether cancer may develop in the future. And it's generally recommended for people with cervixes to start getting pap smears beginning at the age of 21 and repeating the test every three years from age 21 to 65. In addition to pap smears, HPV tests are another important detection method since HPV is the primary cause of cervical cancer. It can detect if you have HPV and if it's a high-risk type that is linked to the development of cervical cancer. HPV tests are a separate procedure but can be done at the same time as a pap smear. They're recommended every five years between the ages of 25 and 65. And in many countries around the world, there are, often, there are shifting to HPV tests, which can be collected through a home self-sampling test. This method has no significant difference in clinical outcomes as HPV tests from a clinician, and they dramatically increases the rate of participation and the overall number of individuals being screened. While there are manufacturers of the at-home HPV tests in the U.S., it's still waiting for FDA approval here. So we've talked about the symptoms and ways to detect cervical cancer. What does the treatment look like for people who may have already gotten a diagnosis? Each case and each treatment plan are going to be varied based on the nature of the cancer, what type it is, how advanced it is, and most importantly, the patient. It's patient-specific. While there are specific guidelines and, of course, standard of care, it still should be geared more specific to the patient. So individual's treatment plan could be different, but the most common treatments come in the form of surgery to remove cancer tissue, chemotherapy to reduce the size or kill the cancer, or using radiation treatment as well to kill the cancer. When someone gets a diagnosis, these are decisions you will make with your clinician who should explain your options in detail, and the accompanying risk and benefits of any given approach. This is all really good information to have, but on an individual level, what are the most important steps that our listeners can take to prevent cervical cancer? Well, although cervical cancer can be very serious and it can be very scary when you get that diagnosis, the good news is that there are several methods for prevention that are extremely effective. The best tool we have is the HPV vaccine. 
It was first introduced and recommended in the United States in 2006. And since then, infections with HPV types that cause most HPV cancers have dropped 88% among teen girls and 81% among young adult women. In the US, Gardasil 9 is the only vaccine in use currently, and it is designed to prevent infections from nine of the most high-risk forms of HPV. It is estimated that the vaccine has the potential to prevent more than 90% of HPV-related cancers. And in addition to that, the efficacy of the HPV vaccine following the guidelines for getting regular screenings like pap smears and HPV tests are excellent ways to ensure you are staying healthy and you're catching any potential problems as early as possible. Even for people who have been vaccinated, it's important to keep up with your screenings in order to make sure you're protected. Now, who is eligible to get the HPV vaccine? Is there a recommended age group or is it limited to people with cervixes? Well, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recommends the HPV vaccine, which is either a two or three dose series, be given to all children and adults from ages nine to 26. Ages 11 and 12 are most highly recommended, but children as young as nine can receive the vaccine. Adults from the age 27 to 45 are also eligible, although it has known to be less effective since many people have already been exposed to the virus at this point. And one of the key things they try to emphasize is that the vaccine is most effective prior to you ever being exposed to HPV. People in this age group can still complete the vaccine series, but may want to speak with their clinician about whether it's actually potentially beneficial at this point. I definitely think that what you said about um, getting the vaccine before you're infected is really important. I think we just learned that with uh, COVID and how everybody was waiting for the vaccine to come out. You didn't want to wait until after you had COVID to get the vaccine. So I think the HPV vaccine would work really similarly. You want to get it beforehand as a prevention method. I think it's a really good way to look at it. But shifting from the micro and like individual experience, can we talk a little bit more about like the macro level and societal impact? Like how prevalent is cervical cancer as a global health issue and what can we do about it? Well, cervical cancer is the fourth most common form of cancer among people with cervix globally. In 2020, there were over 600,000 new cases and nearly 350,000 deaths from cervical cancer, which is a 58% mortality rate. On one hand, there is good news because numerous countries have taken an aggressive approach to addressing cervical cancer, benefit from well-equipped healthcare systems, and have high levels of vaccination and testing among other populations. For example, nearly 80% of eligible Australians have received the HPV vaccine, and the Australian government Department of Health has introduced a nationwide program for HPV self-testing, which has increased participation in screening rates. As a result of these policies, Australia is on track to become the first country in the world to effectively eradicate cervical cancer. On the other hand, 90% of new cervical cancer cases and death came from low and middle income countries. These countries often lack the resources to provide the most effective tools for preventing cervical cancer, 
such as widespread access to two or three doses in the vaccine series and regular screenings from a clinician. This creates two distinct challenges. First, underscreened people with services are much more likely to be diagnosed with cervical cancer. And second, the sheer number of patients and the rate of cancer within the population can be overwhelming for the healthcare system. For example, the global average for cervical cancer cases is 13.3 every 100,000 people. In Eswatini, the country with the highest rate, 84.5 out of every 100,000 individuals will be diagnosed. That is more than six times the global average. So while there have been major advancements in the fight against cervical cancer, there are also huge disparities to consider as well. That's a really good point. Although we are seeing a lot of progress in some areas, like you mentioned, these are two very different pictures. So focusing on the United States, since that's where we are based, are we seeing the same disparities in care and prevention here that we see on a global level? Unfortunately, Michael, yes. No one should have to face a highly preventable and treatable disease, much less die from one. But that is the reality for many Black people with services who are more likely to die from cervical cancer than any other racial or ethnic group. And in addition to that, Latinx people with services have the highest incident rate of any demographic in the U.S., a full 22% higher than their white counterparts and 7% higher than Black individuals with a cervix. Although anyone with a cervix has the potential to develop cervical cancer, people of color and lower socioeconomic status have lower rates of preventive screenings, higher mortality, more incidence of cervical cancer, and a higher likelihood of being diagnosed with a later, more advanced stage of the cancer. And there are other factors such as longer averages between diagnosis and treatment, as well as higher rates of comorbidities. The problem with the screening gap is that the majority of cancer diagnoses are found in underscreened population, and the causes are a higher risk. In addition, Health policymakers generally recreate recommendations for screenings and vaccinations based on a statistical average, which overlooks the need for more frequent screenings among underserved populations who are more likely to be diagnosed or have more serious cases of cervical cancer. There is also a significant variance in HPV vaccination rates, which is one of the most effective ways to prevent cervical cancer. For example, in Rhode Island, they have an 83% vaccination rate, while 31.9% of Mississippians have completed the vaccination series, a gap of over 50 percentage points. Those are really discouraging numbers. Uh, What are some of the ways that we can be addressing the disparities um, in preventative areas, like lower screening rates for those who are disadvantaged socioeconomically? Well, Erin, in my experience, two of the biggest factors that lead to the disparities you mentioned are a lack of access to preventive care and belief-informed attitudes and behaviors. People of color who are at risk for cervical cancer have been shown to have issues with access to preventive services or they choose not to use them. When working with underserved communities and people with color, 
it is important to understand that their health beliefs are imperative before you can begin to address preventive care issues. African-Americans have beliefs that focus on issues with access and administrative hurdles to getting the services they need. Hispanic populations believe centered on physical issues such as pregnancy, sexual activity, and stress determining cancer risk factors. Each culture also had beliefs in reference to sexual activity being linked with needing a pap smear. In order to address these preconceptions about cervical cancer prevention, culturally appropriate education programs are necessary to reframe screenings as a necessary part of cancer prevention. It is also important to increase awareness of available resources for cervical cancer prevention, as many African-Americans noted the cost and locating a clinician as, as hurdles that caused them to delay getting preventive screenings. It is important to note that cost may not specifically refer to the cost of the screening itself, but the cost of missing unpaid time from work cost of childcare during the appointment or for another loved one they may be caring for, cost of transportation to the appointment or even access to transportation. This is why all determinants must be considered as we attempt to increase screening and provide culturally centered education and care. Thank you so much, Yolanda, for your insight and information. We totally appreciate you being here with us today on What the Health. We want to thank Yolanda so much for taking the time to be on this episode of What the Health. And stay tuned for our next episode. Give us a follow on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also learn more about CCAP Across the Map by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok at CCAP Across the Map. You can additionally stay up to date with us on our YouTube channel and through our website, ccapglobal.org. Thanks for listening to What the Health. And we'll catch you next time.